There's a field in Letcher County, Kentucky, where local folks go. Often without being charged to hunt for mushrooms and look for ginseng. There are bluegrass festivals and weddings. And there's no prison. This week on Interstates, Judah Shept tells us how a prison almost got built there and what stopped it. Coming up after this, here on Interstates, from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. There's a spot in Letcher County, Kentucky, where you can drive up a winding road and get to a meadow. You feel like you're driving up a mountainside. Because you are. And then, suddenly, it flattens out. It's super flat for hundreds of acres, and yet you're, like, close to these other peaks, you know? You're, like, in the middle of all these other peaks, and you're like, oh, this is really weird. It's, like, super flat up here. There's tall grass and flowers, birds. But... Also a kind of absence, because you're standing in a place that was once a mountain. In the 1980s, the couple who lived at the bottom of the mountain decided they needed money. So they brought in a coal company. And the coal company, as they do, removed the mountaintop to get to the coal. You probably know that mountaintop removal mining is incredibly destructive. And, you know, not to overstate it, but it's it's emotional, you know, to be on top of, of this space that's been subjected to really significant extractive violence. I know this story is starting to sound like another lament. More habitat lost, more streams polluted, more local communities devastated. But you know, it's always more complicated than just disaster and destruction. That strange flat meadow turned into a space for other things. In the decades since the top was taken off the mountain, the couple who owned it got creative. Just as a few examples, they'd hosted a couple of really major bluegrass concerts up there, like 6,000-person events. Like, people would come and just camp up there. And so they had some bathroom facilities, and a Letcher County model airplane club had paved a runway up there to fly model airplanes. An adjacent landowner is also a master falconer, and so he fl- he flies his birds and hunts with his birds up there. And then lots of people from the county go there often without being charged, to hunt for mushrooms and look for ginseng and, um, yeah, stuff like that. One thing that's not happening in that meadow, there's no prison getting built. This is the story of how that meadow came really close to hosting a prison and what it took to stop it. This is Interstates, by the way, from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. I'm Alex Chambers. When I was in my late 20s, I lived in Alabama, and I taught writing in some of the prisons there. The first prison I taught in was the Bibb Correctional Facility. It was a medium security prison in rural Alabama. When I would drive into Bibb County, it looked like the only places to work were the Walmart just up the highway or the prison. There was a little diner too. Okay, I'm looking up some stats here. And yeah, I'm half right. In 2019, a decade after I was there, the biggest employer was the school system, then the prison, then a plastics manufacturer. Walmart didn't make the list, but still, I imagine the prison's always hiring. You can see why a rural community would want one, whether they've lost jobs because of farm consolidation, shuttered factories, or, say, the decline of the coal industry, the rural parts of the country are hurting, and politicians are happy to offer jails and prisons as a fix. So it might be surprising to hear about Letcher County, Kentucky. Letcher County is in eastern Kentucky, where coal was king. It's not anymore. Mining jobs have been drying up, and Letcher County's economy is in bad shape. About 15 years ago, the promise of new jobs showed up in a proposal from Kentucky Congressman Hal Rogers. He wanted to put a new federal prison on that flattened mountaintop. The mountaintop had been removed for coal, and now it seemed like the perfect place for a prison. The Obama administration funded the project, $444 million. We're going to come back to that number, $444 million. 
By the time the project was greenlighted in 2018, the budget had gone up to $510 million. It was the biggest prison building allocation in U.S. history. And then something unusual happened. On June 20th, 2019, the U.S. Bureau of Prisons posted a notice of withdrawal in the Federal Register. It was withdrawing its decision to build the Letcher County U.S. Penitentiary. It was the first time a project like that had been canceled so late in the game. That decision came about because of a whole coalition of activists, lawyers, landowners, federal prisoners, and others who thought building the prison was not actually such a good idea for Letcher County. Or maybe anywhere. The story of how it all unfolded comes from Judah Shept. Judah is a professor at Eastern Kentucky University, and he's the author of Cole Cage's Crisis, The Rise of the Prison Economy in Central Appalachia, which came out in April from NYU Press. Judah got interested in the links between coal country and prisons through his dissertation research at Indiana University. While he was here, he heard about a new jail expansion being planned in Bloomington. Planners were calling it a justice campus. He got involved as a community organizer opposing its construction and then as an ethnographer for his dissertation. And as part of the study to better understand the justice campus in Bloomington and in Monroe County, it seemed important to think about what had existed prior to where the justice campus was proposed to be built. It was planned for 85 acres on the west side of town the old RCA Thompson site, which for decades had been the biggest color television production plant in the world. It shut down in the mid-90s, and the city pretty much immediately started planning the Justice Campus. So having just sort of written about that and, and really maybe for the first time for me, even as I had been active around these issues for a while, beginning to think about this relationship really in the landscape between industry and deindustrialization and the rise of, in, in the case of Bloomington jails, I moved to Kentucky with some general understanding that there were a lot of prisons in eastern Kentucky. And so the project began with just a general set of questions like, why are there so many prisons in this one region? You know, it's hard to, almost impossible, really, to ask those questions about our region in particular, Central Appalachia, and not be struck by the very visceral and visual practice of building prisons on mountaintop removal sites. After all, in the eyes of the government, the mountaintop removal sites were just these flat expanses that weren't really being used for anything else. In a sense, those removed mountaintops created empty spaces on multiple levels. It wasn't just the mountains themselves that had gone missing. It was jobs in the mines, too. As we know, coal was central to the region. Most people who may be listening to this and who are thinking about eastern Kentucky and the broader region uh, imagine it as like, you know, the coal fields, which is accurate, right? The coal companies moved in in the late 19th century. The industry exploded in the first decades of the 20th and really grew in the world wars. Appalachian coal was sort of central to the war efforts. And at the peak of coal employment in Kentucky alone, there was something like 75,000 people employed by the industry in the state of Kentucky, most of whom were in the eastern Kentucky coal fields. There are also coal fields in western Kentucky, which is not Appalachia. It's a very different kind of landscape. Most of those 75,000 were in eastern Kentucky. But right around the time of the peak of coal employment, the industry also began rapidly mechanizing, which of course allowed for greater production, but at the same time allowed the industry to reduce the costs of labor. And of course, then sort of begin to circumvent and decrease the power of the unions. One of the most effective ways they mechanized was the introduction in the late 1970s of mountaintop removal mining. As this particularly sort of violent form of what we call surface mining or strip mining. And it really in a lot of ways decimated the ecology and economy of the region. Decimated the economy because I think I think the ratio is one miner operating on a mountaintop removal site 
can extract the same amount of coal as 22 miners operating in a deep mine. Yeah, so had grave implications for labor, but also grave implications for ecology as mountaintop removal and mining in general, of course, as people I'm sure know, have really devastating effects on both environment and public health. One of the places coal miners were losing their jobs? Letcher County in southeastern Kentucky. Beginning in the late 80s and early 1990s, the U.S. representative... Congressman Hal Rogers. ...who represents all of eastern Kentucky, began to introduce federal prisons as a quote-unquote solution to to these crises I've been discussing. He's currently one of the longest-serving congresspeople. Longtime chair of the Appropriations Committee, lots of connections. Yeah, very powerful broker on the Hill. He brought three federal prisons to eastern Kentucky just in the 1990s alone on promises of rural economic development. And despite all evidence to the contrary, (laughs) um, he was close to becoming successful to bringing a fourth prison to Letcher County on the same promises of economic development. I say all evidence to the contrary because those three counties to which he brought three federal prisons in the 90s and early 2000s remain three of the poorest counties in one of the poorest congressional districts in the entire United States. But it was that process that had sort of accelerated into this moment, long decade moment, in which I was kind of active in doing the work in Letcher County. But employment wasn't the only crisis in the region. If we think of a lack of jobs as a crisis of production, there was also a crisis of social reproduction which basically just means how society keeps itself going. The thing is, is that the coal industry also, to some extent, floated lots of other things in, the, in these counties, right? It, it helped to float school systems and build out infrastructure, like road building and water lines and things like that. And as coal, the coal industry declined, particularly coal production, so too declined various sources of revenue on which these counties had relied. And the prisons came in not only as a way to imagine alternative employment futures, but also as a way to imagine and concretely plan for the ability to do very kind of like mundane things that all communities need, like update schools, extend water lines, renovate wastewater treatment plants, build and repave roads, like all kinds of that kind of stuff as well. And so that was also very much on the table in Letcher County, the ability of United States Penitentiary Letcher to resolve crises of unemployment and crises of social reproduction, i.e. the ability for Letcher County residents to even see a future for themselves in the county. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Judah Schept. He's a professor in the School of Justice Studies at Eastern Kentucky University and the author of Coal Cage's Crisis, The Rise of the Prison Economy in Central Appalachia. It's time for a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about the promises prison developers make to local communities. States, Alex Chambers, welcome back. We're talking with Judah Schept about why the prison industry in central Appalachia grew alongside the decline of the coal industry. One of the major challenges communities faced was that they were losing revenue, not just the income from local jobs, also local taxes, which is what kept local schools going, and road maintenance and more. I asked Judah to describe the kinds of promises prison boosters have made to local communities and how that's played out. I mean, this is really the crucial question, right? Like, they're marketed in all of these ways that we'll talk about here in a second. And maybe it would be one thing if they actually followed through on and and succeeded on those promises. That would be a kind of different issue we'd have to grapple with, right? Like, as people critical of mass incarceration, we'd have to grapple with a really intense question, which is, what does it mean that there are these institutions premised on caging poor people, of course, disproportionately poor people of color, and yet they are these successful 
strategies of rural economic development, right? That's a, that's a really intense question. The issue is they're just not successful. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and while, while we can point to certain areas where they may succeed in some ways and certain communities where they may succeed in multiple ways, and I think it's important to acknowledge that, and I can speak to that in a moment, on the whole, the data is, is pretty secure in saying that Rural prison growth does not really equal rural economic development, particularly in distressed rural regions. And in some cases, it can further depress those economies. But that's not how it's presented on paper. The prison Hal Rogers wanted to build was a federal prison, and that offered a specific set of opportunities, like federal salaries. So... Part of the pitch from Hal Rogers and from his allies in Letcher County, a group called the Letcher Planning Commission, was that these would be $60,000 a year jobs, federal benefits, you retire with federal, you know, federal retirement, and that there would be something like 400 jobs coming to the county, stable jobs. And the effect of those 400 jobs ripples out. That means... 400 people who work at United States Penitentiary Letcher who will be buying gas at local gas stations and paying local income taxes and shopping at local stores and buying food at local restaurants, sending their children to local schools, visiting local doctors. And as Judah spent time in the community listening to people discuss the proposal, he saw them graft onto those promises a vision of being able to keep living there. Of course, people desperately want to stay where their families are and where they're born and raised, right? The idea of USP Letcher meant they could envision a future for themselves there. They could envision their health clinics staying open, their children being able to stay. The local school district responded in in a way that I think is really telling at various levels of the school district, both high school, vocational school, community college, they began to build out criminal justice and law enforcement tracks, including partnering with a four-year university to offer a bachelor's degree and potentially a master's degree, all of which orbited around the promise of USP Letcher and the idea that they would be training the next generation of prison guards, right? So whereas a generation ago, they would be perhaps preparing people for jobs in the coal mines. Now, in the 2000s, even just as recently as a couple of years ago, the discourse was preparing the next generation of workers for jobs in the prison economy. Like the schools are creating new curriculum already based on this promise of a prison that hasn't come yet. And they started doing it back in 2012. Wow. I mean, that's the other thing that's wild about it, is that the process for citing USP Letcher really did not even begin to get a lot of momentum until about 2015. But you can see the school district really planning for it as early as, I think, 2011 or 2012. Hiring people, building out a firing range and building a mock courtroom Yeah, it was really consequential, just the idea that they might build this prison. I mean, it was the only thing that was offering a sense of the, like you use the word futurity, the sense of something that's going to stabilize us in this place, it seems like. Exactly. It's the only thing. It's what was on offer. I'm just going to underline that point, right? Like, I I would never want to come across as blaming the folks in the county. This is what was offered to them in this conjunctural moment. This moment characterized by the rise of the carceral state or the rise of mass incarceration, the loss of all these other jobs, and the, you know, the maintenance of this idea that prisons do provide this kind of rural economic development. It, we, we, we were all sort of caught in this moment, and, and the prison, therefore, was the, uh-oh, my lights just went out. Can you hear me? Uh, for a minute there, I could not hear him. Right. There was a storm passing through Lexington. Judah was okay. His power came on in a few minutes, thanks to good infrastructure, and we got back to it. 
The proposal to build USP Letcher gave people one way to imagine a future for themselves in Letcher County. But there were people there who knew other futures were possible. Yeah. Letcher County has a particularly rich history of social movement organizing. It was the home of the Appalachian Committee to Save the Land and People. It was the home of the Appalachian Committee for Full Employment. These were these grassroots community organizations that developed in the early 1960s, some of which came out of the war on poverty, some of which anticipated the war on poverty, really a really rich legacy of resistance and organizing and to to an extent insurrection as well. So in some ways, the fact that it was USP Letcher that elicited a response when some of these other prisons hadn't isn't terribly surprising because Letcher County has always had this kind of genealogy. Part of that genealogy is Apple Shop. This amazing kind of community media arts organization based in Whitesburg, the county seat of Letcher County, which has this incredible radio show, which broadcasts into seven of the prisons in the region that are in its listening range. The radio show is called Calls from Home, and it broadcasts messages of love and support from loved ones all over the place into these prisons specific to specific prisoners. And prisoners can also call and and request songs and give shout outs and things like that. By the way, as I work on this episode at the end of July 2022, Apple Shop and Whitesburg have just been hit with the worst flash flooding they've ever seen. Hopefully, by the time you're listening, recovery will be well underway. So Apple Shop's connection to prisons was one factor. There was also Black Lives Matter. This prison began to generate a lot of momentum on the heels of the emergence of the Black Lives Matter movement. Between the legacy of social movement organizing, the radio show Calls from Home, and the critical analysis of mass incarceration that emerged alongside Black Lives Matter. A group of people, particularly young folks who'd been affiliated with the radio show as the process for USP Letcher accelerated, began having conversations around opposing it and developed this group. They called themselves the Letcher Governance Project. It was really a group that was focused kind of like primarily on challenging, undemocratic, corporate-heavy, you know, community planning and development practices that, that is the legacy of planning in Appalachia, you know, done by county elites, done by the coal industry. But in this moment in particular, It was the prison that was sort of uh, the subject of their, you know, the subject of their organizing. They decided the place where they could have the most leverage was by intervening in the Bureau of Prisons' claims about economic development. So they developed a hashtag, Our444 Million. You might remember, that was the original price tag of the prison. And Our444 Million really did a lot of work to like disrupt the Bureau of Prisons and the local prison boosters' claims around economic development. It generated a lot of like counter proposals for what people could imagine occurring in the community. So it was a way to claim the money and say, yes, like Letcher County needs half a billion dollars, but to also disavow the prison. And to do it in no uncertain terms, to say, We don't want our jobs to come at the expense of other poor folks, particularly poor people of color. We want a rural jobs program, but a rural jobs program that's in kind of, you know, a multiracial class solidarity with with other folks. And the way they came up with that hashtag, I feel like was interesting, too. Crucial. Yes, crucial. I'm so glad you said that. So the members of the Letcher Governance Project, like I said, were active in the radio show, but they were also active in lots of other things in the community. And that brought them into the sort of sphere of Southern movement organizing with folks in Atlanta, other places in the Deep South, certainly with Tennessee and the amazing Highlander Center, the stalwart social movement organization in the mountains in Tennessee. And as part of this collection of social movement folks in the South and in the Appalachian South, they found out about a campaign that was occurring in Atlanta, particularly in the Atlanta schools that Project South was helping with. And it was a group of young, primarily African-American youth who were troubled by this proposal for the Atlanta police to spend, or I guess it would be for the schools to spend $10 million to have a greater 
presence of Atlanta police officers in Atlanta public schools. And these young students, public high school students in Atlanta with Project South developed this campaign called 10 mil for real, saying like, really? Like our public schools are so underfunded in all these ways and you're going to drop $10 million to put cops in our schools? And to hear the Letcher Governance Project folks talk about it, that framing really resonated for them. And so they had been having these conversations in Letcher County, but also were then influenced by this framing from other folks doing this incredible anti-police organizing in Atlanta. And they kind of like took that framing back to Eastern Kentucky and implemented it. And it really resonated. You could see it resonate on social media with the hashtag. I saw it resonate in the pages of the environmental impact statements, which was a part of the official environmental review process required under federal law to build a prison. But where there's this open comment period where the public can write in. And there were plenty of people who wrote in in support of the prison, but there were tons of folks who wrote in in opposition to it, many of whom would use our $444 million as the framework within which they opposed the prison and advocated for something different. So that was crucial. But there were also other parts of this coalition that came together. One was that falconer who lived adjacent to the land. Mitch Whitaker's land was part of the original rendering for USP Letcher. His grandfather had lived on that land, too, and had fought coal companies who wanted to take it. Whitaker saw his opposition to the prison taking the land as part of his grandfather's legacy. But who also rehabilitated injured birds of prey on his land and had this business as a falconer. And so he joined this coalition. And, and in joining the coalition, it also, in his words, sort of developed his own analysis of mass incarceration. And the coalition grew. Local organizations, national environmental activists and attorneys who were concerned about the environmental effects on the county and the public health effects on the prisoners, incarcerated people themselves joined too. But I want to remind you that this coalition had a big fight on their hands. They were up against the federal government and one of the most powerful people in Congress. Yes, exactly. It doesn't seem like a very hopeful project. Exactly. It doesn't seem hopeful at all. Especially because in April of 2018, the Bureau of Prisons handed down a record of decision to build the prison. That ended the environmental review process and moved the prison into the construction phase. So it looked like we had lost. I mean, it looked like this prison was going to be built. But then because of a whole lot of things, not the least of which was because of the delays of four or five years that the coalition had Produced During which time, the government changed. Obama, remember, the Obama administration had given the go-ahead on the prison. Obama was no longer in office. It's now the middle of the Trump administration. Trump has somewhat different priorities. Also, the federal prison population has declined. Trump is trying to pass the First Step Act. Like, there are all these, like, weird contradictions happening at the, like, highest scales of the state. So we're in that moment. But also, as I alluded to before, the abolitionist law center attorneys had been paving the way for a lawsuit. And so they filed a lawsuit. There was a local plaintiff, which was a a group of mostly local residents who had filed as a nonprofit called the Friends of the Lily Cornette Woods and the North Fork River Watershed, basically a local environmental group. A lawsuit like that sort of needed a local plaintiff, and a bunch of people got together. So that was one plaintiff. And then uh, Mitch joined the lawsuit, Mitch Whitaker, and federal prisoners. And this was a lawsuit against the Bureau of Prisons, pointing to their, the agency's sort of ignorance of all of the issues that we had raised during the process, but also pointing to a couple of other things which are crucial. One is that the Bureau of Prisons themselves had admitted in the pages of their environmental impact statement, had admitted that the prison would not have the economic development that they had once promised. That was due to lots of people writing in and pointing to the existing social science literature, and the Bureau was forced to admit it. But also in the lawsuit, pointing to the fact that the Department of Justice itself under the Trump administration, had admitted that they don't need the prison. The federal prison population numbers had been declining. 
there was no need, even on their own terms, for the prison to be built. And it took some time, but after the lawsuit had been filed, after the prisoners were added to it, and and then in the context of the DOJ and the Trump administration itself saying, yeah, we don't need this prison, we're going to withdraw the funding, the Bureau of Prisons was forced to sort of concede and withdraw its record of decision, effectively ending the prison. And that was a truly historic victory. It had never been done before. Never had a federal prison moved into the stage of construction and then not been built. And so it was truly, uh, like I said, truly a historic victory for, for, the, for many people who were uh, opposing it. How did it feel? Complicated. It felt complicated. It was a victory in the sense of defeating the prison, which was obviously like, <laughs> that's like, you know, the, the main campaign. The problem was that in the absence of the prison, there were no alternative proposals for anything. It was the prison or nothing. So on the heels of the defeat of the prison, it's not like there was some other proposal that Hal Rogers or anybody else had to fill its footprint or even to fill like some small part of its footprint. And so Letcher County remains in this stage of economic crisis. And so that felt like a a win in some regard and a continued ongoing loss in another regard. That's because the U.S. jail and prison system works on multiple scales. So USP Letcher was a federal prison project. That's defeated, most likely. But... Right after it was defeated, like same calendar year, the state of Kentucky reopened a prison 100 miles north in Wheelwright, which we had mentioned before, which had been a private prison. It had been closed in 2012, and the state reopened it because of the bloated Kentucky state prison population. At the same time, county jails continue to open and grow in eastern Kentucky as kind of like sources of revenue for local communities. This is all to say that as we sort of contributed to the defeat of the carceral state in this one fight in one corner of eastern Kentucky at the scale of the federal government, it was expanding in these other areas. So that's like another way in which the otherwise kind of glee I would feel at at defeating the prison has been somewhat tempered. So yeah, so it's complicated. It is complicated. I think we should sit with that for a minute. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about what it means to imagine a world that doesn't rely on prisons for economic development or punishment. Stick around. Welcome back to Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers. I want to address a subtext to this conversation with Judah Schept about the fight to stop the building of a federal prison in eastern Kentucky. It's not just that the jobs and taxes the prison boosters promised probably wouldn't pan out. It's also that Judah doesn't think we should be using prisons in the first place. But if we don't have prisons, you might be thinking, then how do we deal with the harm some people inflict on other people? Prison abolitionists, Judah included, have thought about this. First of all, certainly at the scale of like a county, like let's say Monroe County or where I live in Fayette County, uh, Lexington, Kentucky, you know, most of the people in jail are there pre-trial or they're they all, you know, that's like 65% of them, or they're there for back child support charges or a probation violation or, you know, possession charges. Like, so there's all sorts of things for which people do not need to be locked in a cage, right? That's the first thing I would say. And where the money that goes to put them in a cage could go towards something else that's much more life-giving. Even when harms occur, There are what I would call and what abolitionists call non-reformist reforms that could be in place to address the harm, right? Some of those exist in places like Monroe County, like restorative justice services. And those, of course, could be invested in and built out and scaled out as ways to respond. And uh, and of course, onto those could be all kinds of practices of restitution and and payment and community work and all, all of that. And I find all of that compelling. I also find it limiting in terms of that being the only response to the question of what is abolition. Because to me, abolition means a whole lot more. 
I just want to observe that everything that you just listed there is different approaches than prisons and jails as responses to interpersonal harm or something like that. It's all reactive. It's all reactive. Brilliant. Exactly. It's all responses at the level of the harm being done, which is, of course, we need to operate there, right? Of course, like we need harms, harms occur. Like, yes, violence happens. Like we, it's incumbent upon us to think about ways to to respond and, and address that. But as lots of other folks have said, people like Mariam Kaba and Ruth Wilson Gilmore and Angela Davis, lots of people, abolition is really about presence. And what that means is it's really about remaking our communities and worlds in very concrete ways. That might be at the, at the level of like the budget. It might be at the level of reimagining what work looks like or what care work looks like. And so abolition is really a way of thinking about alternatives to, I mean, in this case, like alternatives to incarceration or alternatives to the police that may really have nothing on their face to do with like crime and punishment. So like to go back to Eastern Kentucky for a moment, abolition in Eastern Kentucky in Letcher County is about not building a prison and instead investing in all kinds of ways to allow people to see a future for themselves there. That doesn't involve keeping people in cages or policing people or, or, or whatever, right? And in that regard, it's, it, to me, it's, it's very concrete, right? Like abolition is about grassroots social democracy and grassroots planning. Like what do people in Letcher County want to see for their community? What are the economic development models that aren't extractive, that don't rely on waste disposal, which is another common attempt at economic development in the community or in the region? So abolition is really, uh, I think it, it's, it often has to be kind of like context specific. It's going to look different in Monroe County and Bloomington than it does in Eastern Kentucky. But to me, it's a framework for thinking about the kind of dramatic, radical, potentially revolutionary social change that we desperately need. And that I think a lot of people actually want, if you ask them, in some places, it might look more incremental and piecemeal. It might look like reallocation, taking a percentage of a budget that had gone to the police and allocating it elsewhere. In other places, I think it can look much more substantial and really almost zeroing out the amount of money we allocate towards jails and prisons and police and really putting that money where it would actually do the things that we imagine police and prisons and jails and probation to do, which is to provide people with safety, right? Or, or treatment or security or education or whatever. How do we, as a society, provide people with safety and security? It's one of the biggest questions of modern political life. Our assumptions about how much to trust other people and which other people lead us to very different conclusions about how to organize our society. Judah pointed out to me that for a lot of abolitionists, it's not just about getting rid of prisons. It's about rethinking our whole social system, education, the economy, how we think about race and gender, the works. But what I think is particularly important to retain about abolition, really crucial in some ways, uh, about abolition generally and maybe abolition of the prison industrial complex specifically is that it foregrounds the role of, let's say, cops in cages, more generally, of course, police, jails, prisons, courts, electronic monitoring, probation, parole, all of it, foregrounds all of that in our analysis and politics with respect to the state, and in particular, the way that the state has transformed itself, transformed its sort of capacities over the last 40 to 50 years. And in particular, the ways that all of those relationships and institutions and capacities I just mentioned have become really central to the maintenance of what we might call racialized capitalist social order. And I think you see that in everything from what we've been talking about, like the role of the rural county jail, let's say, in serving as like a reliable source of revenue for rural counties in crisis, 
to the rural prisons, serving as sort of a putative federal rural jobs program or helping communities imagine a future in a whole region, to urban gentrification patterns and the role of the police in insulating them, to fine and fee structures that supplement already incredibly bloated police budgets. Okay, so in the last half century, prisons and policing have become more and more at the center of how we deal with challenges in society. There's one more point I think we should address here. Crime. Aren't prisons a response to crime? As I was getting ready for this episode, I mentioned Judah's book to a friend. He asked what it was about. I said it was about how there were more prisons in Appalachia now because of the decline of the coal industry. And he asked, is that because crime went up? Leave it to me to forget about crime. But I don't know. Judah says prison and jail expansion and crime rates don't actually tend to correlate. I think it's a pretty common, I would say, misconception. So much so, though, that I think it can sort of function as common sense, right? Like we imagine that if we're building more and more prisons in the United States, as of course we have over the last four or five decades, it must be in response to a growing presence of crime or a rise in the crime rate or something like that. I would say a few things in response to that, I guess. The first, which is a really like sort of pithy, but really helpful gloss from Ruth Wilson Gilmore, who I think of as maybe the authority on many of these questions. In her pretty foundational book, Golden Gulag, she puts it like this in terms of explaining what we call mass incarceration or the prison boom. She says, looking back on, you know, the last 40 years or so, she says something like crime went up, crime went down, we cracked down. In other words, the crime rate went up, it then began decreasing. And it was at that point that we began so-called sort of getting tough on crime through all kinds of legislative and administrative practices. So the sort of short way of, of restating that is just that prison building and jail expansion and things like that don't really map onto crime rates in any kind of predictable way. They do and are responses to things like criminalization, meaning behaviors that were once not criminalized becoming criminalized. But it's worth restating again, we're still in a historic low period of crime rates for those who are who pay attention to those things and who who find in that particular sort of measure a certain degree of importance, right? It's still worth stating we're in a particularly low period of crime, historic low. The building of jails and prisons isn't just about crime. Maybe it's not at all about crime. Instead, Judas says these institutions have become central to other parts of how our government functions. In some ways, they do generate revenue. They do create some rural jobs and infrastructure, funding for education. You get the picture. USP Letcher would have changed the culture and landscape of Letcher County. Maybe it would have helped in some ways. It didn't get built, but it's not as if that half billion dollars are doing other things in the county. It's still sitting in limbo in the Bureau of Prisons. It'd be nice if it could help with that flooding that just hit the area. In the meantime, that strange flat meadow is still there where there used to be a mountain. You can hold bluegrass concerts there, have a wedding, train your falcons, hunt for mushrooms. Maybe it doesn't pay the bills, but it sure sounds better than standing guard. It's unlikely the Bureau of Prisons had it in for Mitch Whitaker and his falcons in particular, but I like to think he feels a small sense of triumph as his birds wheel around over the coneflower and milkweed, even if the attempt to build a prison there was not personal, even if it did not constitute what we have come to call a microaggression. Microgentrification. We buy gold. You might have called it a microaggression or a macroaggression. When about a year ago, I was sitting on the far end of the porch stoop situation outside one of my beloved cafes, which shared the stoop with a pawn shop, I forget the name, in front of which I sat, or to the side of which I sat, where the sun was sneaking under the awning. And while I was blissed out, eyes closed, holding my eight ounce coffee in my lap, bathing in vitamin D, all the tanks of my immunity being refilled, an employee at the pawn shop interrupted by saying, hey buddy, 
You don't scare me, but I'm afraid you might scare some of my customers, so I'm going to have to ask you to move on. Did I mention there was a pink neon We Buy Gold sign flickering in the window above my head? Anyway, I recalled this interaction as I was leaving that very same cafe, which has now expanded next door into the We Buy Gold store, and looked at the porch where about a year ago I had been told to scoot. Not their porch anymore. That was Ross Gay reading Microgentrification from his book, The Book of Delights. Ross is a poetry professor at Indiana University. Okay, so here's a question. What's the term for the moment when you first meet the person who's going to become your best friend, or even just a good friend? Like, they're a wonderful person, they bring so much to your life, but you're never going to have romantic feelings between the two of you. I don't think it's a meet-cute. That's too romantic. If you think of that word or phrase, let me know on Twitter at InterstatesPod. And maybe this will help get some ideas flowing. We were in marching band together. So if you know anything about marching band. I was a clarinet and she was in the color guard. You'll know that. It takes forever to learn your drill at the beginning of a season. So that, on top of the fact that I was in fact standing on a prop for maybe the first minute, minute and a half of the show, you can imagine how long I was just standing in one spot. I actually was in that spot for a day and a half, just awkwardly watching the band creep closer and closer to me because what was happening was they were forming a line facing the back. And there was one part in the beginning of the show where I had to march in really small footsteps while she was standing straight in front of me. So I had to stare at her for probably like a good 15 to 20 seconds every single time that we ran that part of the show. So I'm like watching the band do that and the guy in the front of the line that was like directly in front of me, um, first of all, this kid needs a haircut. Later on, I found out that she thought my haircut was absolutely awful. It looked so bad. That's like all I could think of. I was just like, oh my God, how is this kid alive in this heat right now? Does he not want to chop all his hair off? It was terribly long. She also had sunglasses sunglasses on. on. Like I could see him looking at me. He couldn't see me looking at him. So I felt more awkward because she can see my eyes, but I can't see hers. It's just really awkward. I'm like, this kid needs a haircut. Why? It's so hot. I want to go home. I, I was just like, why am I doing this? This is my first year of marching band. Anyway, before school starts, but after band camp, we're having our, like, the band's picture taken, and this kid comes up to me and, like, introduces himself. So eventually, I decided, well, I should at least go and ask this person their name. So I decided to go ahead and ask her what her name was, and she was like, my name is Cameron. I did not recognize him as the kid who I've been making really weird eye contact with for two weeks because he had cut his hair. I literally did not recognize him at all. Which is funny to look back on because it all kind of started in this awkward stare down. And uh, anyway, that's how I met Josh. That was Cameron Moore and Josh Hogworth. Cameron is a creative writing and journalism student at Indiana University, and she produced that piece. There's a kind of energy at the beginning of a new friendship. It's similar to the excitement of falling in love. And then the thrill dies down and you settle into a different kind of appreciation. You don't have to talk all the time. Maybe that's the case with getting older in general. I've got more to explore about getting older. Everyone's doing it, you know, even the kids. But let's start with this. Once upon a time, once upon a time, the forest sang a gentle song of wakefulness and dreaming, and the bush hid its flame and longing for the next star in the bright sky. Today, I no longer feel the breath of past dreams and hopes for the kisses of spring and gentle caresses for the autumn heaviness of leaves and snowy mountain paths. Passion has stilled, 
It has grown parched without resonance. Words drip from the body's openings and sometimes choke on saliva left over from them in the mouth. No longer yearning for summer's intoxication. Old age is sounding its note. The solitude of walls and everyday steps. We no longer know where they lead and why. Only lightly caressed by the wind, they huddle in a silence no one knows, no one penetrates, in a silence saturated by all. That was Branislava Volkova, a poet, translator, and professor emerita of Slavonic studies at Indiana University. She's published extensively in Czech and English, and she currently lives in Prague. You can hear more of her poems on WFIU's Poets Weave. All right, that's it for Interstates. If you've got a sound or a story or a better name than Platonic Meat Cute for the Platonic Meat Cute, get in touch at wfiu.org interstates or on Twitter at InterstatesPod. Interstates is produced and edited by me, Alex Chambers, with support from Aebon Binder, Aaron Kane, Mark Chilla, Michael Paskash, Peyton Whaley, and Kate Young. Our executive producer, who just drank his last can of tab ever, is John Bailey. Special thanks this week to Judah Shept, Ross Gay, Cameron Moore, and Branislava Volkova. Our theme song is by Amy Olsner and Justin Vollmer. We have additional music from the artists at Universal Production Music. All right, time for some found sound. listening to a military helicopter on a summer evening. And I hope this episode helped to remind you that that sound is not inevitable. Until next week, I'm Alex Chambers. Thanks for listening.